That was fun. A little bit crazy, but that was fun. That was fun. All right, so uh, we are studying, or studying. There we go. I started off really, really well tonight. We are starting off our new study. We were going to do it last week, but we had uh, such low attendance that we just ended up doing a Q&A last week. Um, but we are doing our study on Laodicea, which you guys have voted on. Um, I'm actually really excited about this study. Um, as I've been preparing for it and kind of working through some stuff, um, there's some things that really make me angry about this study. Um, so I'm excited to get into some of that stuff because it's just it's, – it's one of those things that I – when we study this, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There are certain aspects of our uh, Christianity during this time and during this age that are very, very frustrating. Um, and here's, here's the temptation. And here's before we even start off on any of this stuff, here's where I want you guys to really begin with this, okay? There's a lot of us that when we talk about Laodicea, it's very easy to point the finger at other churches. It's very easy to point the finger at other Christians. And really, the, you may not think that you actually fall into this category. It's very easy to do that. But that is not true. If we're actually going to do what this says, which our whole title is Lukewarm Laodicea, Understanding and Undoing the Spirit of the Age. If you really want to live successfully for the Lord in your lifetime, then you have to look at this stuff and look at yourself. There's going to be some examples that we're going to point the finger at different things within our culture, different things that are happening in Christianity that are very, very frustrating, that just reveal the spirit of the age. But I want you guys to take those things and I want you to internalize it and look at yourself because there are things that really do apply to us. We are Laodiceans and we live in the Laodicean church age. We have a very good church and you have the opportunity here to know more than most Christians that are that are twice your age at this church, which is an amazing privilege. You've got, you guys have a, a, the opportunity to be equipped uh, before you even graduate from high school with things that you will carry with you and you can be successful no matter where you go in this world in the future. So those are all amazing things. But there is the spirit of the age that fights against us every single day and that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, so this, this week is just going to be more of an introduction to what is that and what are those characteristics and, and how do I really see myself um, – you know, when it comes to those characteristics and seeing Laodicea in ourselves. So that's kind of where we're going to go. All right. So let's start this off by opening up to Daniel, Daniel chapter nine, Daniel chapter nine. We're going to get into some of the doctrine behind um, church history a little bit so that way you kind of know where Laodicea sits within the historical time frame of human history. And we're going to kind of jump off from there into the characteristics and kind of see what has happened uh, to lead us up to this point. So uh, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 9, and then we will pray and we'll get into this. And like with any study that we do, if there are questions or things that are confusing you or just things that have been on your mind, please, please, please ask. Most of you guys don't, um, and I get that, uh, but I really want you to. If there's something that's just not clear or something that you're just wondering about, you've got questions about, please ask questions. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, I pray that as we dive into the details of this study, um, and this is a study that, that frankly, overwhelmingly was, was voted by the students to, to go over, and it's, it's a very important topic. Um, and even during this, the day and age that we live, it's just so crazy with all the nonsense that's going on in the political arena, in the social arena, in um, just everyday life as we just talk with the people that we uh, are friends with, people that are our acquaintances, people that we're classmates with, people that are different authorities in our life, and just things are 
are getting more and more chaotic and there doesn't seem to be any order. And, and I know that this is a plan of the devil to uh, just dismantle society and, and really prepare everything for the Antichrist and, and uh, for when the rapture occurs and the world's going to be in utter chaos and for him to kind of gain control of everything. And so I pray that we would see these things and that we would choose not to be a part of it. Um, that we'd see these things in our own hearts and in our own minds and that we choose to be obedient to you and overcome uh, the spirit of the age. So help us, God, because it's easy for us to be self-deceived. It's easy for us to just blind ourselves and just think that this doesn't apply to us when it, frankly, really, really does. So we need to, we just need your help with all that. So help us tonight. Uh, we thank you for your word and how it brings everything to light and makes everything clear. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Daniel chapter 9. All right, so we'll get to this in a minute. All right, so here, the, the paragraph right here is church history is an unknown parenthesis of time that exists on God's 70-week prophecy timeline between the 69th and 70 week, and that is Daniel 9, 24 through 27. So we've gone through some of this before, uh, but I want to hit this because this is probably one of the most important things out of the Old Testament related to overall human history and God's timeline of events on how things are going to go. So if people do not understand Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks prophecy, they're not going to get really anything else right uh, when it comes to God's timeline in the scriptures. So Daniel chapter 9, you've got Daniel here and God reveals something to him uh, through the angel Gabriel that is, that is absolutely fantastic. And so let's start off in verse 20. So Daniel prays, and he prays for the sins of himself and for the people, leading up to verse 19. And in verse 20, it says, And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. And now here's the beginning of the 70 weeks prophecy. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Okay. So Gabriel comes in and he gives this prophecy of 70 weeks. And here's the whole point. Just working slowly through this, you've got 70 weeks, all right? So you have the 70-week prophecy. So you've got a total of 70 weeks. Okay. And then it says, are determined upon thy people. Who is that? Speaking of Daniel. The Jews, Israel. Very important. And upon thy holy city, which is? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And here's the purpose, to finish the transgression 
and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So what does that mean? Just thinking about this from a very logical perspective, he describes this is the purpose of those things. What is that? If you were to describe all of that, how would you describe that in your own words? End sin forever. To make an end of transgressions. Yep. <coughs> Look at it one more time. I'll read it. Because you start thinking about things in the Bible as you read this list. To finish transgression and to make an end of sins. When is God going to do that? At the very end. The great white throne judgment. That's the final judgment of sin. Okay? So there's that. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. When did God make reconciliation for iniquity? Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay? So that's in there. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. Salvation. That's part of it. When will be a time of everlasting righteousness? Okay, after the great white throne judgment, but also the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. Right? Because when he comes in, he's going to establish righteousness throughout the entire world and the universe. So that's in there and the great white throne judgment and to seal up the vision and the prophecy. What is that? Described by two words commonly found at the end of every book. The end. <laughs> the book is closed. The story's over, right? So to make a, to end everything, to seal it up and to finish everything and to anoint the most holy. Who is that? Who's the most holy? That be Who? Come on. God, Jesus, he's the anointed one. He's the most holy one. So to anoint him as the king over everything, right? Okay. So all these things are in the prophecy. So when you have a timeline, you've got, you know, this period where Daniel gets this vision and 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. This would be the end of time. So God is giving from Daniel's viewpoint, there's 70 weeks that are going to be determined upon thy people and this is the purpose of it, to bring an end to all things and to establish everlasting righteousness. It would be the end of time, the end of everything that God started with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end. All right? So he's giving him, this is the rest of human history. That's pretty significant to show him that. So he tells him that right there. Okay? And then, verse 25, he starts to give the timeline. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. How many weeks is that? 69 weeks. So from the going forth of the commandment, so the commandment would start that clock. The commandment to rebuild Jerusalem would start that clock and then God's timeline would tick, 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 all the way up until you have the 69th week I know it's not exactly proportion, but who cares? 69th week. So you have, you have 69 periods of these 69 weeks, and then you have one week that remains, and this is where we would get that seven-year tribulation period. Okay? So we know that from studying the word weeks in the Bible that it's actually, you know, each, each week is a period of, of seven years, and then you find out from the timeline given in the book of Revelation, which we don't have time to go into tonight just because we don't have the time to do it, that there's going to be a seven-year period, and that is the 70th week. Because it says, 
at the end of that where it says in verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So this last week here and that he confirming the covenant would be the Antichrist. Okay? So we know this last part is the tribulation period. So from that commandment that would go forth to rebuild Jerusalem, there would be 69 periods of seven years until this point. And then God calls out the 69th week. And then he says that there's going to be a covenant that a prince, lowercase p, is going to confirm with many for one week. And then comes the end based upon what he said in verse 24. Okay? So that's just oversimplified. Way oversimplified. Right, Bobby? You guys just went through this in Daniel. You're actually taking an exam this week on it, aren't you? Uh, Yeah, how about that? Okay. So that's what he ends up unveiling. Now, what's really, really cool is that if you study out the commandment and how this actually worked through... Down to the very day, I mean, this is amazing to me, down to the very day that Jesus Christ walks through into Jerusalem, riding on the colt with the palm branches, we call it Palm Sunday, where the Jews say what? What do they say? Anyone remember? Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So they acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Messiah on Palm Sunday. And then they crucify him shortly thereafter. To the day that Jesus comes through in the city is exactly 69 periods of seven years. To the day. To the day. That is fascinating. Because what is 69 times 7? Number. 490. 490? Is that what it is? 483. 483. Because you got your final week, right? So, 483 years down to the day Jesus walks through on the colt, or rides through on the colt to Jerusalem, fulfilling this prophecy, to the day. And then you have that final week where now this hasn't even happened yet. So God has, in on his calendar, this little time here, and we'll do it with a different color so you guys can see. This time here, where it kind of is like, that's church history. And how many years has it been? Almost 2,000 years. God stopped that clock, 2,000 years, snip it, and then once the rapture takes place and the Antichrist confirms that covenant, begins that final week. So there will be seven lunar years, 360-day years, except in Revelation where it says those days are going to be shortened. That's another topic. Where that final week will occur and everything will be over. It will be over. And then you have the thousand year reign. And then from that point forward, then he's going to establish everlasting righteousness with the thousand year reign. Yes. Um, so you said God stopped the clock. Is that why we don't know when it's going to happen? Yep. Wait, I didn't exactly. the end of this question. And what- Since God stopped the clock... On the 70 weeks, that's when we. That's why we don't know exactly when the rapture is going to take place in the beginning. Yes, that's why we don't know. Because God could start it anytime he wants. Yeah. Were there people, like, tracking with the seven or, like, the 483 years that, like, knew that it was coming? Like, I think Jesus so. Yeah, I think so. I think there are people that knew all along. And plus, God even showed people. So, if you remember in the accounts of Matthew... And in Luke, um, you had uh, several different people that God specifically told them, before you die, you will see the Messiah. Um, And then, you know, as you kind of work through everything else from there, um, 
you know, I'm sure there were people that probably knew all about that. But there are a lot of people like today that are just completely oblivious. So. But isn't that amazing? That is absolutely amazing to me. That's one of the reasons why I love the Bible and why it completely outshines any other religious writing that exists on this planet. Because only God can do stuff like that. Yeah, Haley. Okay, so you were saying like it was down to the day when Jesus arrived, like Palm Sunday and everything. Yep. Can you explain that? Yes. Okay. So, okay. So there's 483 years in the 69 weeks. Okay. So um, from the going forth of, of rebuilding, now they believe it was Artaxerxes. Um, I forget the exact detail. I only have the number of days. Did you remember that from the class, what the commandment was? I know it was Artaxerxes, but it was yeah, and there's a certain one because there's more than one Artaxerxes in history. But there's one of them. I forget exactly what it was. But what you would do is that from that commandment that went forth, which is clearly documented out of Nehemiah in the times of Nehemiah and Ezra when they were told to go and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem, and you start counting on the calendar from that day forward, and you were to count up 173,880 days, then down to that day is when Jesus came through on the colt. So from the moment that Artaxerxes says, go, rebuild, the clock started. And then from that day forward, you count forward in history, 173,880 days, and then that's when Jesus went through on the gold. Yeah. Yeah. There's a theory that, um, you know how God said that when the temple is being rebuilt, uh-huh. the rapture will happen? Uh-huh. Well, no, he didn't say that, but... Uh, well, Apparently, they already collected all the stuff to yep. rebuild the temple. They have. So they believe that it's going to happen in the next three years. Yeah. Well, they've said that for the last three years and the three years before that and three years before that. When I was in, let's see, when I was um, 16, when I was 16, 17 years old, um, they had everything ready in the temple. And so that's been, you know, 15 years roughly, 14 years, that they've had everything ready sitting in a warehouse ready to rebuild the temple. They have everything ready, everything. The last thing that they were waiting for, they have, they have all the, the block, they have the, the plans, they have been training the priests They've been uh, working through how to do the sacrifices. They have all the instruments. They have everything ready to go. Were they waiting for the red heifer? They were waiting for the red heifer. And the first one showed up about, um, I think it was about 10, it was about 10 years ago that the first one showed up, but there was a slight blemish in it. And then the one just showed up within the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that's part of the Levitical law. You need an, an, an absolute, like a red heifer that has no blemish, no markings, perfect, uh, no discoloration whatsoever in order to do a certain ritual for the priesthood. And that's actually showed up. They've never been able to actually, like, because you can't control what comes out of the lineage of the heifers, um, out of the cows. But you end up getting that one, and it's a complete, total red heifer. So that's something very significant. Yeah. There's, like, an organization online that... The Temple that, Institute. Yes, it's funding literally go fund it to get yeah. It started. yeah exactly so but the bible does not say the temple has to be built before the rapture takes place the rapture can take place at any point in time we do know the temple needs to be built for the antichrist to show up and declare himself as god so at some point um, either before the rapture or after the rapture but somewhere before the three and a half years into uh, the tribulation the temple must be built so it'll be interesting to see how that happens because today um, you know, those that adhere to Islam, they declare it to be one of their most holy sites, which it's not. It's like third, fourth, or fifth on their list. But they just hold on to it because it's important to the Jews and they don't want to give it up. Last question. Yeah. Um, so, is, are we going to be in heaven before the Antichrist shows up? Is that like a 
what's going to happen? Possibly. I mean, he could be here now. We don't really know. Um, but it's not until three and a half years into the tribulation that he is attempted to, he, he's assassinated and then he comes back from the dead. And at that point in time, he's possessed by the devil. And so then he's revealed for who he actually is. So when that happens, we'll be long gone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's the overall timeline. All right. So that's the overall timeline. All right. So knowing that, let's get into the rest of the paragraph here. Okay. So um, we are in between the 69th and 70 week of this prophecy. Knowing that the last week of the seven-week prophecy is a seven-year tribulation period. Each week of the prophecy is a period of seven weeks, totaling 490 years. But God never specifies the exact length of the church period. The only thing we know from Scripture is that there are seven periods of church history. And this, these are the seven letters to the seven churches found in Revelation 2 and 3. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 3 because we're going to look at the last one. Revelation. Revelation. All right, so Revelation chapter 3, we have the last letter. But if you look at, just, just briefly, look at chapter 2, um, you have the things which, which Jesus told John specifically to write. Um, and even if you back it up a little bit more into chapter 1 and verse 19, this is kind of our key verse for uh, understanding church history from Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus tells John, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So in, in order to understand this verse, you've got to understand what's going on with John. Because if you look at, at chapter 1 and verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So John, back in 90 AD, was on the Isle of Patmos because they tried to kill him by throwing him in a pot of boiling oil. And it didn't work. He didn't die. And so they exiled him to Patmos. Well, while he's on Patmos, God shows up. And he takes him, it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he takes John. So if we, we just pretend that you've got, hold on, go this way. All right. So you've got your timeline. I always do it backwards. I'm sorry. So you have your timeline here where John's in 90 AD. God takes him in the spirit and transports him forward in history to the Lord's day. Whenever you see the Lord's day in scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it is always referring to either two things. One, the beginning of the tribulation and the tribulation period or, and, the second coming of Christ. It's all-inclusive. Sometimes you got to look at the details, and based on the context, you know which one God's talking about. So when he takes John from 90 AD and transports him all the way forward, Jesus says, write the things which thou hast seen. Right? Throughout human history from 90 AD all the way up, the things which are the beginning of the tribulation period, and the things which shall be hereafter towards the end. And that's the entire book of Revelation. And you can break down the entire book of Revelation into those three parts. The things that thou hast seen pass for him because now he's in the future on the Lord's day. And that would be Revelation 2 and 3. And the things which are, and that would be, um, you know, Revelation basically 4 till about basically 19. And then you have 19, 20, 21, 22, which is the things which shall be thereafter in the future. All right? Hereafter. So that's kind of how you break out... Um, you know, the book of Revelation. It's very, very simple when you look at it from that perspective. So you've got seven periods of church history. The first one is the, to the church of Ephesus. That's in verse one of chapter two. The second one is the church in Smyrna, which is chapter one, verse, or chapter two, verse eight. And then the third one is chapter two in verse 12, Pergamos. The next one is Thyatira, verse 18 of chapter two. 
The next one after that is chapter 3, and you got Sardis. That's another time period of church history. And then you got chapter 3 and verse 7, the Philadelphian church period. And then you've got ours, which is the last one, which begins chapter 3 and verse 14 to the church of the Laodiceans. And that is the last one. And then after all of that's over, look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, after this, what is this? Yes, the Laodicean church age. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So immediately after the Laodicean church period, that letter to Laodicea, a door is open in heaven. A voice speaks, which sounds like a trumpet. That's straight out of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, about the rapture. And it says, come up hither. And I'm telling you, that's the rapture right there. And then the first thing that we're going to see is verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So as soon as the rapture occurs, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, your body is going to be transformed immediately in the blinking of an eye. You will be gloriously changed to your glorified body. And when you finally open up your eyes in heaven, the first thing you're going to see is the throne and God sitting on the throne, Jesus Christ, which is absolutely astounding. So right there, you've got church history. Now, when you meticulously go through, which we do this in another series, church history, you meticulously go through each letter and you line it up with the events that occurred throughout church history, beginning at 90 AD, all the way up until the present. You find out it lines up perfectly. I mean, perfectly with the events of church history. I mean, perfectly. In my mind, whenever I was going through stuff like this, it was almost like, okay, so... You know, God spoke, you know, you got Adam and you got all this stuff that occurred all the way leading up to you and you got the prophecies about Jesus and you got the four gospels and then he's crucified and then he's got his disciples and, you know, they, they're the apostles. They go out and they spread the gospel. You got the book of Acts and you got Romans. You kind of work your way through. And so the God's communicating, communicating until Revelation, which we know is written in 90 AD. And then it's almost like God shuts down. And he doesn't say anything about anything else. And so how do we even know that where we're at is even true based on what the Bible says? I mean, that's, that's very common. I grew up thinking that way. And what I realized after studying some of this stuff out is that God did not stay quiet. He gave John every detail about church history, even up to what's happening today, what's going to be happening in the next few days, what's going to be happening in the next couple of years until the rapture happens, whenever it happens. And then he continues picking up the story with what's going to happen during the tribulation all the way through. So when you look at your Bible, God has literally told you everything from Genesis in the beginning to it is finished. All of human history is covered in your Bible. Everything. He has given everything to you. And you can understand it perfectly if you're willing to believe him and look at history and just be honest. It's quite fascinating. I love the Bible. I love it. Okay, so we are in that final period right before the rapture of the church and the start of the tribulation. All right. So the Laodicean church period, which we're going to get into that passage here in a minute, is described in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 as perilous, extremely deceitful, and far from the Lord. If we are to succeed while living in this period of history, we have to take heed to the words of Christ in Revelation 3, 14 through 22, and obedient to what he says. So we're going to read that here in a minute. But I wanted to give you guys this chart as well. So this is 
I mean, this is something that's really, really cool. So if you go into Matthew 20, Mark 13, Revelation 2 and 3, you'll find that God has actually given the account of church history in the scriptures, uh, not just once, but more than once, three times, in Matthew 20, Mark 13, and in Revelation 2 and 3. So it's really, really cool. So he describes church history on many different fronts. One is through the seven letters. In Mark 13, he describes it as these periods of the uh, the even, midnight, the cock crowing in the morning. And he also describes it in Matthew chapter 20 as the morning, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour, until everything's finished. So it's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, so, like, we, we, we know that we're in, like, Laodicea. So did, like, the Philadelphians or the Sardisians? Know, Sardis. Sar- the people of Sardis know yeah. that they were in their ages? Some of them did. Um, you know, it's, I believe just like Paul, Paul believed that the rapture could happen at any moment. And so, and he preached that, um, and he preached it as a form of, of people being comforted with those words out of first Thessalonians chapter four. So he believed that could happen at any point in time, but just like in the book of Acts, like in Acts chapter two, you know, it's not until the disciples were called Christians first until Antioch. And so that happened like way after Acts one, Acts two, Acts three, when people are first getting saved. And they were born again for the first time when Peter was preaching. And so the Jews at that time in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, when they were saved, they had no idea what being born again meant. They had no idea what the terms Christian meant. But as time unfolded, they understood. And I think it's the same thing with this. God told us what was going to happen because he knows the end from the beginning. But Paul didn't really get that. He didn't really understand exactly what that length of time would be. Um, you know, maybe he did, but I think based on the way he wrote First Thessalonians chapter 4, I think that the, he believed the rapture could happen at any point in time. But now that we're at the end, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. How many of you have made mistakes and then you look back and you're like, oh, I was an idiot, <laughs> you know? And so God, in some ways, during the most perilous times of human history, has given you the gift of hindsight for you to see where you're at based on what has happened so you don't make the same mistakes, which is quite amazing. So he knew that we would need this in order to stay motivated and do the right thing. So I love that about God. So good question, though. All right, so if you got some spare time, you know, Matthew 20, Mark 13, Revelation 2 and 3, it's just really cool to study some of that stuff out. Um, we cover some of that stuff in my JBI class, so I just pulled this chart just to kind of give you an idea about how God communicates these things in the scriptures. So that's kind of cool. All right, so Revelation 3. Let's lead, read through the letter to the Laodiceans, and then we're going to go through some of the characteristics. And each week we're going to cover a different characteristic Some of them do tie together. Some of them will overlap, and that's completely fine. But what I'd like to do is talk about a characteristic each week, and I'm going to pull something from uh, whether it's a news article or a video that I saw online or some ridiculous meme that's out there and just kind of pull out, look at this is what I mean. This is the characteristic, and then show you in your own life how we think that way in our own life and how we can overcome that. Yeah, Lydia. Yeah. Yes, it is. So it's very easy to understand once you once once I explain it. You're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, um, so the last days are always described as you know being dark. So it's nighttime, and even in the book of Romans, how it talks about uh, in the last days and, and during this time that people are falling asleep, um, and that we need to awake out of sleep and that kind of stuff. So that picture is, is described in the New Testament as this period of church history is going to be, it's a, it's a very dark time. 
But what's really interesting is that when you just observe how things work in creation and you work your way through like the even midnight, the cock crowing in the morning, um, when you work through some of that stuff, even with the morning, sixth hour, ninth hour, twelfth hour and all that kind of stuff, when you work through all that, uh, right before the sun rises is actually when it's the darkest outside. And the sun rising is a picture of the second coming of Christ. And so right before he comes back, it's going to be the darkest ever. And so it's going to get increasingly dark and dark and dark and dark. So that's why God always refers to it as nighttime. So. Yeah. All right. Any others before we move on? Yeah. Um, I think I've heard this explained before, but like it says sixth hour at the end of like the 9 to 12 p.m. Yeah. Uh, in green above the blue. And then ninth hour above like the end of 3 p.m. Yep. So why is that? The... Oh, because there's just three different accounts. So when you look at the the Matthew one where it goes by the different um, hours of the day. So the Jewish day is completely different from ours. Um, so they begin – their day begins um, at 6 p.m. every night. So they don't begin in the morning. They actually, their day begins at 6 p.m. and it kind of works their way through. Um, so that's kind of – and he's describing it to the Jews that way because that's how Jews looked at that, that time frame. So – Right. Okay. Yes, Jack. Uh, um, so, what if there are people driving at the time of after? Yeah. They Angels pull the cars over. Yeah. Well, I mean, at that point, at that point, you know, just I mean, just think about it logically. So when it happens, um, now I don't know exactly like how. We know how quickly our bodies are going to be changed. But we don't know. The only thing that we know is it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now think about that for a second. How many Christians have died since Acts chapter 2 that have been buried and that are going to rise up out of the grave with glorified bodies before you're taken off the planet? I mean millions. Wait, like, is it going to be like, are they going to like tear up the ground? Yeah. Or is it just going to be like. No, I believe. So when you. Most. Now listen to this. This is another thing that's interesting. Most cemeteries, by the way, are positioned on purpose. Like when people are buried, they're buried so that way they are actually facing the. Like they're facing the east. So that way when the rapture occurs, when they come up out of the grave, they're actually going the direction that God wants them to go when they're out of here. I don't know if you ever thought about that. When you ever, whenever you go into a cemetery, like we just passed by a cemetery on the way to church. So the one that's right by the Dunkin' Donuts where you've got um, whatever road that is, Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh. And so if you go past that cemetery, you notice that all the graves are pointing towards the highway. There's a reason. Whatever. I might be getting it backwards. That's all right. But they're all pointing it in, a, in the same direction. Right. Because when the rapture occurs, that they're going to be basically facing Christ whenever they come up out of the grave. That's right. That's so awesome. Because the voice is going to come out of the east, and they're going to come out of their graves. So yeah. would we, would, like, at being alive still, would yeah. we just, like, get... <laughs> Well, not unwillingly, but just like forcibly turned east and then just 
I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. I mean, people have done that. God never said anywhere in the Bible, make sure you bury your people a certain way. He never did that. People just did that because they believed the Bible. Now, so when that happens, so think about this for a second. So think about this for a second. So think about the the amount of Christians that have been born again Christians that have been uh, that have died or have been killed and have been buried since Acts chapter two. The amount, I mean, you can't put a number on it, but it's got to be in the millions, maybe even in the billions. So it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the moment, and I don't know how quick it's going to go, but if you can imagine if you are driving, going back to that illustration, and let's say you are driving and all of a sudden you see graves popping open and people flying into the sky. Either you would get in an accident <laughs> and then maybe you'd kind of be in that between where you actually died during the accident and then God takes you as kind of like the, the subgroup before taking those which are alive remain. I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be utter chaos. And, and I'm telling you, I know this is a conspiracy theory, but I'm telling you more and more dialogue has been happening within our culture about people, population control, and people just wanting to get people out of here. I firmly believe that some of the, the conspiracy that the Antichrist is going to be behind is that, well, you know that the earth and global warming, the earth is, is basically you're destroying the earth. And so we had to remove people off the planet. And so they're going to use the rapture and the Antichrist is going to take credit for it. And people that are working with him to say, people, I removed people off the planet. We've been, we're actually from outer space. And we've been observing you for centuries. And we decided to take people out because you're destroying your planet and we're here to save you. There's no doubt in my mind that stuff like that's going to happen. Because what's happening today? People are loving creation more than the souls of men. They're willing to save uh, dogs and cats and fish and and birds over. And and instead, they're they're murdering babies. So... So it's, it's those sorts of things that once you start seeing the events of your culture and you start seeing the rapture and you start just working through and just thinking about some of these things, it's not too far off. I mean, call me crazy if you want. That's fine. But I'm pretty sure I'm right on this one. So you just think about that. All right. We're getting way off track. We're getting way off track. We need to keep going. We need to keep going. All right. So hold, hold your questions till the end. We'll get back to that. All right. So Revelation 3. Let's start off in verse 14. We're going to read through this. We're going to talk about the characteristics that we're going to hit. And then we'll hit your questions at the end. All right. So, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest... I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, so here's the characteristics. Just based out of this, these verses right here from 14 to 22, we find these particular characteristics. First of all, Laodicea means civil rights. That's your blank. Civil rights. Civil rights. The rights of the people are my personal rights. And I'm telling you, some of the stuff that we're going to look at next Wednesday, I mean, it just ticks me off. But we'll talk about this and how people's belief in my personal rights has gotten so bad that you can't even give the gospel anymore freely because of internal struggle that you have with people or you even offending someone or potentially even breaking the law and it being hate speech. People's rights have gotten so bad that it is tearing apart the fabric of our society and it's going to destroy churches. And it really gives you guys more of an opportunity to stand out. And we'll talk about more of that next week. So Laodicea, that's the first one. Second thing that we see is a characteristic. We struggle with God as the creator. No other time in church history and frankly human history have people believed in the lie that God doesn't exist. Now, people have always believed that God hasn't exist, but they've always been in the minority. Now, everything is turning, and now it is more popular to believe that God doesn't exist and that we came from monkeys and other, other evolving, you know, from, from goop or from bacteria that evolved over m- millennia and billions of years. It is more popular to believe that fantasy than it is to actually believe what the Bible says. And it's crazy. There's no other time in human history, in no other letter in church history, did God address himself as the creator. And so that's very specific. So we need to spend some time talking about that as a characteristic that we struggle with. And then the next one, we are not cold or hot. We are lukewarm. Things that are cold have a benefit. Things that are hot have a benefit. But things that are lukewarm really has no benefit. And, uh, and so we tend to be lukewarm Christians that we add no benefit to God um, and frankly, it would probably be better that we were just taken out of here. Uh, the next characteristic, we are self-deceived and do not see our true condition. I think there are many Christians that think that they are way better than what they actually are. Way better. Way, way better. And I think that if we are willing to see ourselves for who we really are, um, we would be much more spiritually ready to do anything that God wants us to do. So we're going to talk about that. We are shamefully naked. That kind of goes along with it. So there's a little bit of repetition there. We are shamefully naked. Um, From God's perspective, we're as if we are a naked, crazy person talking to themselves, running through the streets. I mean, that's how God sees us, uh, that we need psychological and mental help. We are loved, rebuked, and chastened by God. I think that's very important to call out, that even though that we are really letting God down on the mission that he's entrusted to us, that we are still loved. And God will rebuke us and we're chastened. And that's a, an expression of his love, which is completely lost in our culture. People think in our culture that if you rebuke someone or you chasten them, that you don't love them, that you hate them. What? No. It's actually mean because you love them. You actually care about a person enough to tell them when they're wrong. <laughs> that's like gone out of our culture. It's ridiculous. We are so busy with our own lives and ministry that we've left Christ outside. That's going to be a tough one to swallow. We are so busy with our own lives and ministry that we've left Christ outside. We've forgotten to let him in and when we're doing his work. And then lastly, we are able to overcome the spirit of this church age and walk favorably with the Lord. It is possible. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said that. He said in verse 21, to him that overcometh, 
So it is possible for you to overcome all this nonsense. So, so in the coming weeks, we're going to dive into these characteristics and learn how to overcome the deceitful spirit inside each one of us and live a life where God will say, well done. So this is going to be a very interesting series. I don't know exactly how it's going to look quite yet because, um, you know, I've not written this material before. So, uh, but I think it's going to be very applicable. And, you know, one, to, you can invite people. I mean, invite as much as you can. If you think this is going to benefit somebody that you go to school with or that goes to another church or someone that's lost, I mean, bring them. Because this is going to be hitting you guys right where you're at with what you deal each and every day. So, all right. So we are officially done. All right, so any other questions that you guys had? Yeah. Will the Antichrist know he's Antichrist before the rapture? Um, I think so. Um, so in the Bible, there are varying types of the Antichrist. And um, probably the one that is the most applicable would be Judas uh, for many reasons, which I won't get into because they're going to lead to more questions. Um, but with Judas, you know, there's, there's part of me where do I, do I believe that he knew he was going to betray Christ before he did? I don't necessarily think so. Um, but there came a moment where it says literally that Satan indwelt him and possessed him and then he ended up betraying Christ. Um, so I think that he was a conflicted guy and I think it's quite possible that the Antichrist doesn't necessarily know who he is. Uh, until later um, but it's also possible that he knows and he's just really good at what he does so I can't really answer that confidently and frankly that's how the devil works anyway he's very deceitful so it's hard to really pinpoint him on stuff yeah okay so my mom has a theory and just let me know if you agree okay she thinks that the Pope's going to be the Antichrist because um, in the songs that they sing mm-hmm. um, it sounds like they're praising Lucifer because it actually has the word Lucifer in it when they're singing that song I don't think he's going to be the Pope. I think that he's going to take out the Pope um, and that he is going to be the head of the Catholic Church, but it's going to be more than that because the Catholic Church is clearly the harlot out of Revelation 17. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You'd have to be an idiot not to see it, which, frankly, most Christians are when it comes to Revelation 17. But um, I believe that, that the devil has created the Roman Catholic Church and is using it to his end, but there comes a point, like the devil does, where he throws it out. And he destroys it in order to usurp and put himself up on top because he's going to call himself God. And so when he does that, it's going to be a kind of a, a rested form of the Roman Catholic Church through which the majority of the world's population is going to be under his authority religiously. So there has to be some major changes in the Roman Catholic Church in order for Muslims to kind of be put under his wing or the Antichrist is going to wipe out all Muslims. I mean, that could happen too. Um, we don't really know. But – He's got to be in a position where he is a religious leader over all religions. Uh, and I think that the Roman Catholic Church is a key point in that. But there comes a point where I think that he's actually going to take him out and, um, and end up being the figurehead of the Roman Catholic Church and then change it. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, so like you mentioned that, that you think that maybe the Antichrist is already like born or maybe he is. Possibly, um, yep. Um, do you think it's possible maybe he was born like, I don't know, several, or like at the beginning of the Laodicean church age and he's just been kept alive, like almost immortally, but not like... So that. my theory on this is that I believe that Satan has always had a guy ready. Because remember, this timeline is unknown. So I think that Satan has always had a guy ready. I think Hitler could have been the Antichrist. Um, you know, whenever you look at history and, and historical battles... 
there's always key turning points in battles where the guy who looks like that he's going to win just ends up losing for no reason at all. And that's God's hand upon human history. So I think the devil has placed men in positions of power to be the Antichrist. Um, and there's certain things that, that, that have to be in place in order for that to happen, which complicates things greatly and it would cause mass confusion and more questions that I'm not even going to get into that. Um, but I think that he's always had a guy ready at certain points in time in, in history in order to, to do that. So I do believe that. Yeah. Yeah, Jack. Can you have multiple, like, because Satan can only be in one place and one time. Mm-hmm. So could there be multiple? Multiple antichrists? Yes. Well, I mean, there's always one guy. Um, but Satan's always, he's very strategic. He always has a plan. Um, he always has a hierarchy when it comes to power and how he works in the world, uh, which we're going to get into that when we get into the doctrine of the spirit age or the, the spirit world on Sunday morning. When we hit that and we talk about the spirit world, we're going to talk about how Satan has a network. And, but um, I think that there's always been, like, like I just mentioned, like a guy ready um, that he could just discard. Like a Judas was one of them. You know, Judas, I believe firmly, could have been the Antichrist. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, that there are guys like that that I think could have played that role very, very easily. Very easily. So. All right. Anything else? Okay. All right. Good deal. All right. Let's pray and let's get out of here. God, thank you so much for your word. It does, it's, it's just amazing. I pray we'd stand in all of your word and just really understand that the book that we have is literally unsearchable treasures and that we cherish this book and then we wouldn't neglect it. Um, and then we wouldn't treat it like another book. We treat it as your word, as you yourself, because it's called the mind of Christ. And so the way we treat the Bible is the way we treat you. And I pray that we'd see that and we'd understand that in our heart and that we change and we make you more of a priority in our life. Thank you so much for tonight, those that came out, uh, those that weren't able to come. Um, I pray for them. Um, I pray that we'd be able to just get these things out there so people could just understand that the that Christianity that's out there that's really going mainstream really is very, very far from you. Um, there's still work getting done and people are getting saved. There's no doubt about that. But there's some things that we just need to make sure that we really contend for the faith as you talk about in the book of Jude. So help us, God. We need you. We need your help, especially during these times that are so, so wicked and deceitful and very perilous. So thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.